Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we live in a place where we can hear your word preached aloud, that we can be taught your word. God, I ask today that your word would um, pierce through to our hearts, God, that we would um, be open to receiving your word and that word would have its effect in us. In your name we pray, amen. All right, if you guys have your Bibles with you, would you open up to Luke chapter 16? Luke 16, starting in verse 19. It's the rich man, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate there was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So I want to show us two things today from this parable. I want to show us, and I want to show you how they relate to us as Jesus' disciples. The first one is Jesus' promise to the poor, and the second is Jesus' challenge to those with resources to share with the poor, to relieve their suffering. The outcome of this parable, as we just read, is at once absolutely tragic and unbelievably beautiful. The rich man, who was once from an earthly perspective, perhaps a very blessed man who had it all, status, honor, money, friends, but now he is separated from God, asking for his thirst to be quenched, And Lazarus, a poor and destitute, lonely, pitiable man, is now sharing in the blessing of Abraham in the presence of God being ministered to by angels. He has all that one could ever need or want. And what a stark contrast. What a great reversal. So this is one of those passages in Scripture, I think, that leaves a lasting impression on our hearts and minds, like the parable of the prodigal son. Once we read it, we don't forget it easily. And the reason is clear, right? The whole parable is a vividly painted picture 
And this is why Jesus teaches in parables, because they turn us from readers into lookers, right? We find ourselves in the parable as it goes on, and it carries us and our senses with it. I remember a time, and I won't forget it, I was in San Francisco working with a local church there ministering to the homeless, and I remember a scene that is forever engraved on my mind. There was an upscale popular restaurant in the city. It was one where the front of the building was all window, right, so you could see everybody dining, enjoying their meals and conversations, and right below them laying down on the sidewalk was a homeless man who had nothing but his stinky, tattered clothes laying there. And, you know, where I'm not condemning people for eating at that restaurant and enjoying themselves, but the scene was striking, right? It calls to mind and heart that deep sense in our souls that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And the question arises, why do some suffer while others do not? And I want to be careful at the outset that of the idea that there's anything inherently wicked in the difference of the described conditions of these two men in this parable. Jesus is simply describing things as they are often seen in the world and as we must expect to see them. And this is what makes this parable so real to us. We have all seen this scene and it is not lost on us. As we read this parable, we become witnesses to all the events described. We see, we hear, we imagine, we can almost touch the rich man's banquet, the purple, the fine linen, the gates, the beggar lying by it, the sores, the dogs, the crumbs, the two deaths, the rich man's burial, the ministering angels, the bosom of Abraham, the rich man's fearful waking up, the fire, the gulf, the hopeless remorse, all of these stand out before our eyes. Um, If you could put that picture up, media team. Um, I found this... um, engraving done by an artist um, by the name of Sir John Everett Milias. Um, he was, I think, an 18th or 19th century artist. And he, this is one of 20 schedules of the parables of Christ done by him. And they're all made into beautiful carvings of wood. But it's a painting of the rich man and Lazarus. And as you can see in the front, you have Lazarus there in his naked body and um, a blanket covering him. You have the dogs licking his sores. And then as you move back into the background, you can see men and women dressed for a feast, a banquet, a party. There even looks like there's someone with a trumpet there in the back. There's servants pouring wine. And then you can see the rich man kind of at the head of the table. It's probably harder to see from where you are. But he's sitting there in the back um, getting some, enjoying some more wine. I'm going to leave this up here. I just think it's a beautiful painting and helps um, bring it to life for us. But let's observe the conditions of these two men's lives, right? The condition of the rich man described in this parable is akin to that of royal wealth, wealth of the likes that many of us will never know and only can imagine through books or movies, right? Purple and fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day. And if you have feasts, you usually have guests. And when you have guests over, you don't just heat up the leftovers, right? You bring out the brisket, the ribeyes, the fine wine, the nice china. And you bet that this rich man didn't do all the cooking and setting up himself. A man who holds feasts every day has servants and cooks. Cooks who cook the food and servants who pour the wine and servants who clean up after it's over. And all those servants must be paid. 
Right, this man had it all. Meanwhile, at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. He was covered with sores. He was hungry. He longed to eat maybe even a crumb that had fallen from the rich man's table. And yet, as far as we know, he was never given that crumb. He was alone, and the dogs licked his sores. The unclean, kicked-around dogs of the streets were the only ones who paid attention to Lazarus. They were his only friends during his life on earth. We must be careful that we don't rush into assuming a conclusion of this parable. We don't want to assume that what is being taught by Jesus is that the rich are always evil and that the poor are always holy. Right? The rich are not always evil men, do not always go to hell, and the poor are not always holy men, and do not always go to heaven. It is not a sin to be rich. It is important, however, that we observe that we live in a fallen world where sin is real and the devil is working to destroy us. Right? The rich man and Lazarus are pictures of two classes of people, which will always be until the Lord comes again. But then what do we do with this parable? What is the hidden lesson for us? Is it to not be rich or else we end up in hell? And therefore we ought to force ourselves into extreme poverty like Lazarus so that we might be blessed and spend eternity with God? Jesus' promise to the poor that is, his ministry to the oppressed and excluded begins in Luke 4 and builds as a theme throughout Luke's gospel. We can't read this parable without reminding ourselves of what Jesus taught and why and what he came to do. Because listening to this parable and others that came before it, there are two main groups of people that we see again and again, Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees. I want us to hear this parable in the context of Jesus' life and ministry up to this point so we can have um, and understand its maximum impacts and clarity. Right, Beginning in Luke 4, Christ himself announces the nature of his ministry by reading from the scroll in Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Christ's reading from the scroll is a statement of what God has sent Jesus to do. It is a statement of his commission. It is a preview of what Jesus is setting about to do. Jesus announces this in Luke 4, that he has set out to disrupt the structures of society that perpetuate injustice and exclusion, to announce a new kingdom, an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that reverses these structures of society, that those with power, status, and riches are put down, and those with power, status, and riches are lifted up. One commentator puts it this way. He says that Jesus intervenes on the side of the oppressed and excluded, assuring them that they share in God's salvation and defending them against others who want to maintain their own superiority at the expense of such people. And we see again and again in Scripture that those people in Luke's Gospel are often the Pharisees, right? Those with status, wealth, and power. But Jesus is constantly eating with sinners and tax collectors, mingling with the unclean and the excluded, speaking with Samaritans, forgiving sinners, allowing women to be in his company. All of these people were seen as the outcasts of society. They were excluded, unwelcomed, and were not to have the honor of keeping company with a rabbi, and were not to have the honor in the next life that Jesus promised was theirs. As we move forward in Luke chapter 6, in accordance with the commission that we read from Luke 4, Jesus, he lifts up his eyes to his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, 
for you shall be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Christ wants to make it clear to his disciples who left all to follow him that they will also share in this blessing of the poor. Because being a disciple of Jesus will mean that we must forego earthly comforts and riches, that following Jesus will cost us now, but our rewards in heaven and the glory that is to come will far outweigh what we lose in this life. Paul echoes this in Romans 8. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Right? Can we see that Jesus is asking his disciples to do as he is doing? In Luke 6, 30, he commands unlimited generosity to all those who request aid. He asks his disciples to give without expecting anything in return. His disciples are asked to land even in situations where they receive no gain and may suffer considerable loss. Jesus' disciples are being asked to join the poor not only by leaving all in order to embark on a mission, but also by offering their resources for the needs of others. Right? And these gifts and these loans will be acts of love and mercy, which are like the love and mercy of God, making the disciples sons of the Most High. And those who give and lend to people in need are participating in what God is doing for the poor. They are being merciful as their Father in heaven is merciful. And we see again in chapter 12, the disciples are told to sell all your possessions and give charity. The command to sell indicates that disposal of major items of property, not just the use of available cash. The teaching about the ravens and the lilies, which precedes this command, highlights God's care in order to make possible such radical action. The goal of the command is to detach the disciples from false treasure and guide them into concrete acts of mercy for the poor. Jesus came for the poor and the hungry, the marginalized and the oppressed. He came to bring them good news that they are blessed and that theirs is the kingdom of God. And Jesus expected his disciples to do the same. So in light of Jesus' ministry, in light of understanding Jesus' mission, starting in Luke 4, reading from the scroll of Isaiah, I think it's better for us now to view this parable as Jesus' disciples. And to hear one Jesus' promise to the poor, and two, Jesus' challenge to those with resources and money. And as disciples, I think we will hear both of those in this parable. So, is the rich man in this parable condemned because of his riches? No. Why then does he end up in hell? The charge against the rich man is not simply that he received good things in life, and so must take evil things now to balance it out. The way in which this story is told suggests that the rich man deserves torment because he did not share his wealth with Lazarus. It is his lack of compassion, his lack of care for the poor, the hungry. He hoarded his wealth for himself. This is what landed the rich man in hell. The rich man neglected Lazarus. Lazarus sat outside the gate to the rich man's home and received nothing from him. He was ignored. The rich man is condemned because he cared only for himself and did not use his wealth to relieve the suffering of Lazarus and show mercy and kindness. The rich man got what he wanted. He wanted comfort and riches in this life, and that is all he got. Um, the 19th century Bishop J.C. Ryle says it this way. He says, take away the good things of this life, and the rich man has nothing left. Nothing after death, nothing beyond the grave. Nothing in the world to come. 
With all his riches, he had no treasure laid up in heaven. With all his purple and fine linen, he had no garment of righteousness. With all his admiring companions, he had no friend and advocate at God's right hand. With all his sumptuous fare, he had never tasted the bread of life. With all his splendid palace, he had no home in the eternal world. He was without God, without Christ, without faith, without grace, without pardon, without holiness. He lives to himself for a few short years and then goes down hopelessly to hell. How hollow and unreal was all of his prosperity. This rich man was indeed very poor. Not all is as it seems, right, when Jesus is reading that parable. And Lazarus is one who literally had nothing in this world. A man who was carried around and had sores all over his body, who was hungry, who was alone, no house, no food, no health, probably no clothes. It's hard to imagine one in a worse state than Lazarus, right? But Lazarus was rich. Why? Because he was a child of God, an heir of God's kingdom. His name was written in the book of life. God had prepared a place for him. In the end, Lazarus had God as his portion and as his friend. He had food forever and clothed in the righteousness of God for all eternity. It is significant to point out that Jesus gives the poor man a name in this parable. Right? The rich man is known only as the nameless rich man, but Lazarus comes from the name Eleazar, which means God has helped. Indeed, God has helped Lazarus in this story, and in contrast to the rich man who was helped only by himself and had no need of God's help. After reviewing Jesus' ministry and mission and now seeing this parable in light of that, can we see how if we were Jesus' disciples and we were listening to this parable, how clear it would have been to his disciples and to us now of why the rich man ended up in hell. Right After everything he has been teaching them about his mission and ministry and what it looks like to be his follower. But also, for the Pharisee who was listening, can we see how they would have been perhaps offended by the ending of this parable, right? And I love this about Jesus' parables because built within them are these hidden traps, right? Traps that reveal the hidden heart, right? The Pharisee would have been listening to this parable, hearing about the rich man and how blessed he is, his status, honor, and wealth, and probably would have been expecting the rich man to end up with Abraham. They would have not have guessed the reversal that happens in the end of the parable, that Lazarus, the unclean, the object of God's judgment, who must have been paying for his sins with his destitution, is actually the one who ended up next to Abraham. The figure of promise, sharing in blessing. The Pharisees would have expected the blessed rich man to be gathered to the fathers, not Lazarus. The Pharisees are the ones with wealth, status, and honor. They are the ones who would neglect the poor, unclean outcasts, and they are the ones who oppress the very people Jesus came to minister to. The Pharisees are the ones who wore purple and fine linen. They are the ones who feasted while the poor remained hungry and unclean as outcasts. The Pharisees used their position to benefit themselves rather than using it to benefit the less fortunate and the oppressed. You'll remember just previous to this in the parable of the unjust steward, Jesus says to the Pharisees or to those who are listening that you cannot serve both God and money. And a question at this point, I think we, asked, we ought to ask, as disciples of Jesus, as we read this parable, is, Lord, am I like the rich man? Lord, how am I using my position to lift others up? 
How are we heeding Jesus' challenge, right, to use our resources to help others? And I think we ought to ask this question because we are privileged. Many of us do have honor and status and wealth. And as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we know what is required of us, right? To be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. We might say to ourselves, well, we don't have, we don't have wealth like the rich man in this story. And that definitely is true. But that doesn't mean we're excluded from hearing Jesus' warning and challenge in this parable as those who do have resources to give. <clears throat> a fun fact for some perspective, um, and I say this fact because it can be easy to view our lives comparing it to others, but often we compare ourselves with others who have more rather than less. And we might say in our hearts <clears throat> that we need what they have. And it ends up giving us the illusion, the illusion that we don't have what we need and that we need more and more and more. Right? This is how our consumer market works. This is how advertising works. But we can lose sight of how much we actually do have. So I found this um, global wealth calculator thing online. And I typed in some numbers. California's minimum wage next year will be $16 an hour. So if you work 40 hours a week for the whole year, you will make approximately $33,280 a year at minimum wage. In comparison to the whole rest of the world, that puts us in the top 11% of the world's wealth, which means that we would be economically wealthier than 89% of the entire world population. This doesn't include the other benefits offered to us, like insurance and employers who provide certain benefits. In America alone, working a minimum wage job, that would put us, make us 54% wealthier than the rest of the population. So I don't share these statistics, right, to make us feel bad for having money. Like we saw, it's not the rich man's wealth that landed him in hell. Because I know that I work hard, and we all work hard, and have families to raise and support, and we desire to give them good things, and we ought to. But I share this because I don't want us to forget how lucky we are to live where we live, and in what a great position we are to serve our Lord with our resources to share with those in need and to use our position to help others like Christ has shown us, to continue his ministry that he began in Luke 4. It is a great opportunity we have that even our whole family can participate in these acts of mercy and a wonderful way to share our faith with our children through praying, asking God, who can we help? God, who can we give to? God, who is in need? I know that our church has a benevolent fund that a lot of us give to, and that is a great pathway. And if we are going to be Christ's disciples, then we must do as we see him doing. I heard a story recently of a friend of mine who paid for a guided tour through Israel, led by a Bible scholar. And he went with some friends and a bunch of high schoolers, <clears throat> and they end up showing up super late to their hotel after some long flights, and their teacher, the Bible scholar, was there waiting for him. Anyways, the teacher who was to be their guide was pretty short of words and direct and kind of told everybody promptly without much emotion or excitement, you know, get to sleep because we're waking up early to start a long hike. First thing. He said, be ready at 6 a.m. down by the bus. My friend wasn't excited about having to get little sleep so he could wake up the next morning to a big hike. And neither were any of the high schoolers whose parents 
paid for them to go on this amazing trip that none of them really wanted to be on, especially with a teacher who was, on first impressions, pretty uninviting and making everyone go on a big hike with little sleep. So the next morning, <clears throat> when they get up early, they get down to where the bus is and find that it's lined with water bottles at each row of seats. And this teacher of theirs, theirs tells them to make sure that they take all the water with them because they're going to need it. And then, as you would expect, he doesn't say anything for the whole trip, the whole bus ride to the hike, kind of slowly angry, ang making my friend more angry as they go on, expecting more of a guided tour and not so much of a silent teacher. So they make it to their destination, and they get there to this mountain in the road, and they see that there's a road going all the way up the mountain with cars and buses up and down. And as you can imagine, a group of unwilling high schoolers seeing that and then thinking to themselves, why in the heck are we hiking this when we could drive up it? My friend also wasn't stoked considering the lack of sleep he got, and not to mention the teacher has said only a few sentences to them the whole time they've been there. So with the tired attitude, they start their hike, and right before they begin their ascent, the teacher stops at a spring, and he dips his hat in the water at like 6.30 a.m. It's cool and it's dark, and he throws this hat on his head, and everyone looks around thinking to themselves, what the heck is this guy doing? And then they move on and up the mountain. After a long hike, the teacher gets to the top of the mountain, and he stops, he gets everyone's attention, and he asks, how many of you dipped your hat in the spring? And a few people who had been on the trip before raised their hands, and then the teacher turned to everyone else and said, you know nothing about being a disciple. Right, and what's the point he's trying to make? He's attempting to show all of these young, modern American Christians what it means slash what it meant to be a disciple, right? Because if you are a disciple, you do exactly what you see your teacher doing. If he dips his hat in the water in the spring, then you dip your hat in the spring. I share this story because I think it illustrates a kind of surprising and almost a funny way that if we are going to be disciples of Christ, then we must do as he does, right? If, if, if his mission was to proclaim good news to the poor, care for the sick and hungry, then that is our mission as well. Jesus himself says, I do only what I see my Father in heaven, heaven doing. Likewise, we do only what we see our Lord and Savior and Teacher doing. Jesus' challenge to those listening to this parable is real. There is a real danger in having possessions and money. They are a false temporary treasure which can lead us away from the true treasure that is in heaven. Dependence on riches conflicts with devotion to God, as we saw in the previous parable. And an objection we may have, right, in Jesus' teaching when he tells us to give to all generously who ask, right, is, well, if I just give that homeless person money, well, they might squander it. Or if someone is asking for money who doesn't really need it but is scheming me, why would I do that? Right, and we should remember that Christ did say to give generously to all who ask. C.S. Lewis on the matter said, It will not bother me in the hour of death to reflect that I have been, quote, had for a sucker by any number of impostors. But it would be a torment to know that I had refused even one person in need. And do you see the difference of thought in Lewis's words? Right? Lewis is thinking about who he lives for. He's thinking about what is the great end, the aim, the object, the ruling motive of his life. He is asking us, to whom do we live? To ourselves or Christ? 
And Paul doesn't mince words either when he says, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, 2 Corinthians 5. And if we do end up living like the rich man, we will no doubt have gained the whole world and in the process forfeited our own souls. And at the end of our lives, anything we have will be left behind. Right? So we must give generously to all and store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Our rewards as disciples are in the next life. And we don't just do it for rewards later. We do it also because that is the only natural response to God's love and compassion towards us. When we were spiritually dead in our sins, Christ died for us. And he has made us now richer than we could ever dare hope in the life that is to come, just like Lazarus. And we've also been blessed in this life with resources to care for the poor and hungry Lazaruses that we meet. We are called to liberality. We are called to live generously as disciples of Christ. Like Christ, we too are to proclaim good news to the poor and needy, the less fortunate and marginalized and the oppressed. Not only do we proclaim good news with our words, but with our lives and our resources. I would encourage us all to ask God to show us the needs right in front of us. Ask the Lord where you can meet a need this week and make it a practice of asking him. Pray together as a family and see where we can meet the needs of others. The Lord will present it to us, and maybe we already know. If we do, then it's important for us to meditate and remember how much the Lord has given us, right? Because that's the place that we give from. We don't give, right, to claim for ourselves our own righteousness, but we give because Christ has loved us and has given us everything. And from that place of having received from the Lord, that is the place that we give back. Um, I want to close with a reading from Matthew 25. You can turn there if you have your Bibles open. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. As Jesus' disciples, right, we are called to continue to fulfill Jesus' promise to the poor, right, to the outcasts, to the excluded, to the oppressed, to use our position, our resources, our finances to lift others up. Right, and we also need to heed that challenge as Jesus' disciples, right? Asking, Lord, where in my heart am I like the rich man? Where am I holding back? Where am I not meeting the needs of those that are right in front of me? So I want to encourage us um, this week to ask the Lord to show us, God, where can we meet some needs? You know, how can I give? And meditate this week on what the Lord has given you, because that has to be the place that we give from. It has to be the place that we give to people out of love, is from Christ's love for us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray you would embolden us. I pray that you would give us courage and strength to hear your words, to see your ministry to those who are less fortunate, God, that we may participate with you in giving to them and lifting others up. God, that we would see our lives as a whole with eternity in mind. God, we wouldn't just be looking at this life thinking about what we need or what we don't have. God, but seeing what you've given us um, so that we can use it to give to others. In Jesus' name, amen.